In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all uh, on this uh, 13th Sunday after Pentecost. And I mentioned at the beginning of this season after Pentecost that the gospel readings from Luke would pull no punches, that we would encounter, uh, be challenged by, confronted by many of the hard sayings of Jesus, the so-called hard or difficult sayings of Jesus. And I want us to consider this morning, what is it that makes them hard sayings, like our gospel this morning? Is it primarily that they are hard, difficult to understand? Or is it that they are difficult to reckon with? Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, he, or maybe you've heard it pronounced Kierkegaard, uh, he was a 19th century uh, Danish philosopher, had the opportunity uh, to study under a Kierkegaard uh, scholar early in my graduate work. Uh, and an interesting biography, it, it, at least to me, it puts my wife to sleep if I try to talk about it. Uh, but he was, he was a Christian, and he was highly critical of the modern church, he, especially of the church in Denmark, his homeland. Uh, he thought it to be virtually unrecognizable as a Christian entity. Uh, now, for those of you who, like me, uh, who perhaps you grew up in the Bible Belt or you lived uh, in the Bible Belt at, at some point uh, in your life, you will remember people passing out tracts, remember little cards or pamphlets uh, that would invite people to church, that would have a, a summary of the gospel message. I, I was thinking about tracts as I was preparing for my sermon. Does anyone remember the ones that look like fake money? <laughs> <laughs> it would be like a hundred dollar bill or some of them I think were actually like like million dollar bills but like there were ones that really looked like real money and people would leave them on the ground or and this this is bad they would like give them to their servers as tips at restaurants I'm like dude okay I thought you know I figured I picture like this struggling single mom like oh money and then the greatest gift is eternal life you know <laughs> um <laughs> So old Kierkegaard, he would, uh, he would pass out tracts, but these were different kinds of tracts. Uh, they were not tracts inviting people to church. They were actually tracts dissuading people from going to church because they thought the church in Denmark was so corrupt. Uh, I'm going to read you right now a, a lengthy excerpt uh, from one of his journals where he is critiquing the tendency of Christians of biblical scholars in particular, to soften or explain away the difficult teachings of Jesus. And feel free to laugh. He does have quite the sarcastic uh, wit, old Kierkegaard. He writes this, The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend, to be able, we pretend to be unable to understand because we know very well that the minute we understand, 
we are, applied, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in this world? And herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. I open the New Testament and read, If you want to be perfect, then sell all your goods and give to the poor and come follow me. Good God, if we were actually to do this, all the capitalists, all the office holders, all the entrepreneurs, the whole society, in fact, would be almost beggars. We would be sunk if it were not for Christian scholarship. Praise be to everyone who works to consolidate the reputation of Christian scholarship, which helps to restrain the New Testament, this confounded book, which would one, two, three, run us all down if it got loose. That is if Christian scholarship did not restrain it. Little taste of Kierkegaard at his best. We do have to be careful. We do need to guard against the tendency, the human tendency, of sanding down the rough edges of Jesus' teaching, of ignoring or radically reinterpreting scripture, scriptures that make us uncomfortable or that are not palatable to modern man. We do need to let the Spirit search our hearts. We need to ask ourselves the hard questions. Have I put the whole of my life on the altar? Have I offered the whole of who I am in response to the mercy and love and grace of God as a living sacrifice? So Kierkegaard gets a lot right. But on the other hand, because this can be a problem too, we also have to guard against Reading our unhealthy and unbiblical views of God into the scriptures, into the text, and interpreting the scriptures in the most negative and uncharitable way. For example, thinking erroneously that God is fundamentally angry, that he's out to get you. That Jesus, when he exhorts us and challenges us, he's scolding us. He's disgusted with us. And he sets the bar so high for discipleship for the express purpose of knowing that no one can meet that standard and will therefore be cast into outer darkness. We can read those sort of really unhealthy views of God, unbiblical views of God, into the scriptures, especially into the hard sayings of Jesus. So what then is Jesus saying? What is he saying here? 
in Luke 14? What is he getting at? Is he commanding us, for example, to hate our families? Maybe some of you don't get along with your families, and you, you heard that with a, <laughs> a sigh of relief. You're free to tell them what you've always wanted to tell them. Is Jesus telling us to hate our, our spouses, our, our mother, our father, our, our children? Well, no, of course not. How would that reconcile with the rest of Scripture, with Jesus' other teachings? We, we just heard it. Every Sunday, we hear it Sunday by Sunday, the summary of the law, the greatest commandments. Well, what's the second commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. And who is your neighbor? We learned this a few weeks ago. Everyone. We are to love everyone as we love ourselves. Jesus commands us even to love our enemies. One of the Ten Commandments is to honor thy father and mother, not hate them. As far as children, of course we are to love our children. Jesus loves the little children. He wants us to love our children, to love all children, and to protect them too. Jesus warns that those who would harm children especially harm them spiritually. He says, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea. So again, what is Jesus saying? I think it helps tremendously for us to consider the context, the original context in which he is speaking. Not so that we can avoid his call, but so that we can answer it. We're not playing the, well, Jesus was talking to these people a long time ago, and this doesn't apply to me game. That was for them. I'm glad Jesus didn't call me to do anything. Jesus' audience is comprised primarily of, well, totally of people living in the first century, but first century Israelites children of Abraham according to the flesh. And family identity, what we would call perhaps anachronistically national identity, it was everything to these people. Their identity as the people of God, as the family of God. And Jesus had come to fulfill the law, to renew the family of Abraham to reconstitute it around his person and work. He was building a worldwide family that included both Jew and Gentile. So in part in this text, Jesus is simply being descriptive. If you follow me, it's going to cost you these things. It's going to cause a rift in this family, it is going to cost you your familial and national identity. Because what happened? Jesus came into his own, and his own did not receive him. Along the same lines are their possessions. So the two, I, I would, the two most impart, uh, important identity markers for the people of Israel or two of the most important, blood 
and soil. Blood, family, and land. Remember, God had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. And if they followed Jesus, so Jesus is telling them, this is the deal. So these first century Israelites, if they follow Jesus, do you think the Sanhedrin, do you think Herod, do you think the Romans, we're just going to let them keep their stuff, let them live a life of peace and quiet? No. They had to come to understand that God's holy land is ultimately the whole world. It's the new creation. It's the life of the age to come. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is calling them and us out of an old life and into a new life. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But to take up the cross is not an easy life. We know this. To follow Jesus won't be easy. Perhaps we've experienced the bait and switch. Perhaps you've turned on religious programming at three in the morning. That if you follow Jesus, your life is going to be great. Jesus will help you reach the American dream. I've heard very popular preachers, some of the most popular preachers in this country, say things like, if you follow Jesus and you lose your job, you're going to get a better job. Your car breaks down, Jesus is going to give you a better car. That seems to be quite different sentiment from what Jesus is saying here in Luke 14. But, on the other hand, to take up the cross is not to take up a burdensome life, but to enter the only life that there is to enter truly the best life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. He says, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. To take up the cross, which they would not have immediately thought of this metaphorically in the first century, because they had seen people crucified, is to lose your life and to find it, again, hidden with Christ and God. How do you hear the words of Jesus? How do you hear his call to radical discipleship in Luke 14? If Jesus seems to you to be, to be punitive, to be grouchy, to be judgmental, I would ask, is that tone intrinsic to the text, or are you reading that into the text? I would suggest that these exhortations are much more akin to William Wallace on his horse, rousing his army for battle, than some sort of scolding. You need to understand... Jesus loves you. Jesus is for you. God loves you, and some of you know that he loves you. God even likes you. He wants you to be on the team. 
And you are. You're in. You're in, if you know Jesus Christ, you're in the family of God. You are the people of God. You are adopted sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But Jesus is speaking the truth in love. He is indeed. There's no way around it. Jesus is making an absolute demand on your life because you cannot serve two masters. It's not possible to walk on the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life at the same time. You cannot rest your head upon the breast of the Savior and arrest your security and trust on the things of the world at the same time. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves and to this world so that he can ruin our lives? No, so that we can truly live. So that we can truly live. You cannot handle, and I cannot handle, and I, I have struggled with this my whole Christian life. You, you won't be able to reckon with the absolute demand that Jesus makes on your life, that he's asking you to make an unconditional surrender to his lordship. You won't be able to reckon with that if you're not assured that he's good that his commands, that his calls are rooted in love, that they are intrinsically good, and that they're for your good. That life in Christ is the great adventure. There's a cheesy Stephen Curtis Chapman song called The Great Adventure from the early 90s. I still love that song. That song still pumps me up. Because to know Christ Jesus is, is the greatest adventure. It's where life is found. He is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Also, you're not going to be able to cope with the hard sayings of Jesus if you think that the Christian life is something that you do in your own strength. How hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Well, impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Living the Christian life, again, I've said this so many times, it's not about you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and trying to be a good person, trying to follow the teachings of Jesus in your own strength. It's about putting yourself in the hands of of the potter so that the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit can mold you and make you into the image and likeness of his Son. It's something that God initiates. That we're, we're co cooperating and we're not resisting the work that he's doing in our hearts. Because God knows our frame. He does. 
He knows that we are but dust. He knows that we're going to fall seven times a day. So what's our response to that? What's our response to our frailty? Is it to lower the standard of what it means to follow Jesus? You know, running a marathon's hard, so let's just say a marathon's a mile. Well, you're not running a marathon anymore. If you've radically reimagined who Jesus is and who he's been revealed to be and what it means to follow him, then you're not following Jesus anymore, are you? You're just following your own idea of who you would like Jesus to be. So our response is not to lower the standard, but to admit that we fall short of such a standard and to make recourse to grace. To be humble and open to transformation. So much of this is disposition. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Of just humbly walking with the Lord. And as you get to know him, recognizing that he's going to heal your soul and change you and transform you into his likeness. We're at, I'll close with this, land the plane. We're in a pivotal time in the life of our church in a good way. And it's been so encouraging. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit in the announcements. To see the, the leadership in this church, the people in this church, uh, step out in faith. And I want us to keep uh, pressing into that. I want us as a church, as families, as individuals, to live like we believe the promises of God are true. Living as if the promises of God are true, which they are. So, brothers and sisters, let us anchor ourselves in the truth and the promise that Christ has come to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. So let us, brothers and sisters, let go of anything that holds us back from following him. Let us put the whole of our lives, our relationships, our stuff, our possessions, ourselves, our souls, and our bodies on the altar so that we may become what we were created to be and so that God may use us for his glory. Amen.